Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 24th Fourth verse, the 37th through the 44, uh, the 24th chapter, the 37th through the 44th verse. It is the gospel that the church uses in the A cycle for the first Sunday of Advent, and so it, it picks up the eschatological theme from the end of liturgical years, since this is the beginning of the church's liturgical years, the first Sunday of Advent. And so its emphasis <clears throat> is on something that we call eschatology. And uh, it, comes, it comes from the Greek word eschaton, which means last. And it has to do then with the last things, with the final days, with, the, with what happens then when history and time pass away and only the Lord is there for us. And I think it's an interesting and a necessary kind of concept for us to grapple with, during, especially during this Advent season as we await the rebirth of the Savior. Remember that uh, the Feast of the Conception of Jesus is on the, uh, the 25th of March. The Annunciation, which used to be <clears throat> the major feast, and it was not the 25th of December, which is exactly nine months later. But as we enter then into this eschatological reflection, the Church's eschatological reflections through the Scriptures, what we realize is that Jesus is already inherently present among us, and he is present among us within the womb of the Virgin. And he does not come forth into the the uh, manifestation of the presence of the Son until both Christmas in the Western Church and Epiphany in the Eastern Church. When the first is when he comes and is, is brought before the shepherds and the second before the Gentiles. So, so what we're talking about then is, an, is a hidden presence of the Lord um, in, in this proper liturgical preparation time of, of the Church. And in a way, then, this is exactly the story of the Christian experience. We have been, in some way, um, Christ has been placed within us through the, through the sacraments of initiation. And we travel with him in this hidden manner, in this way that we are not always constantly aware of his presence until the day when he appears to us and therefore all things become manifest. So that eschatology then is not only a reflection on the final times, only not a reflection of the, of the last times, but it's a reflection too of the journey of getting there. It's not that, you know, and I think that we have to grapple with the scriptural notion of time as well, um, that we know that time is, is not coextensive with eternity. Um, and that means that in the infinite eternity is not just an endless uh, duration of moments, that it is a moment which never falters, which never leaves, which never changes. Time itself is a created entity, and it exists in relationship to creation. And it exists in its totality, so that the past is never completely gone, the future is never completely elusive, and the present is the time of our own experience. Nevertheless, time flows through us, and time is part of us. And so, 
whether we take the tack, for instance, of St. Augustine, and we see the three powers of the soul, memory, um, intelligence, and intellect, and will, where the memory is said in Augustine to retain kind of a basic fundamental knowledge that needs to be formed by <clears throat> experience. And if it's unformed, it can come up with very strange and unusual things. And by formed, I simply mean open to revelation, open to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, open to the wisdom and the movement of the Church. Um, whether we do it that way, or um, whether, whether we see it basically as a historical phenomenon, and uh, we realize that the past is very much a part of our present experience, um, even to the point where those who kind of toy with the idea, perhaps a genetic memory of sorts, where the genes that we inherit carry within them kind of a, a memory of, of past, past lives, past events, and so forth. And since these are all theoretical speculations, the, the fact of the matter is that, that we strive in some way to recognize that our, our relationship with time is our, integrated, is our integ integration into time, and that it is into, integrated into the whole time. We are influenced by the past, by the present, and by the future. Um, there's a, uh, a philosopher, uh, professor from the University of Toronto, Kenneth Schmidt, I think is his name. He does an excellent treatise on, on, the, uh, on the, the passing away, the is, and the coming to be of time. And uh, it's kind of an interesting new look at time, because from the Renaissance on, we just saw time basically as a, as a linear, rational progression, and had no idea that it was something that exists, not simply something that is a measuring stick. So once that is broken and we go back into scriptures and realize their, their understanding of time is totally different from the Renaissance rational understanding of time, and we have to do that to get into the things that we're going to talk about with eschatology. Because one of the things that the Gospels are telling us <clears throat> is that our present life is relevant to our future. That it is not just, you know, well, I did this and it's gone, I did this and it's gone. Everything that we do, every conscious decision we make, every kind of of unconscious decision that we're, that we're disposed to make, all of those things build up and create the person that we are. And the person that we are is the person that moves into the future and from the future into eternity. So that who we are, who we are, what we are building up within ourselves during the course of a lifetime has a major impact on the final destination, the final judgment, the final rec rec um, um, reconciliation between ourselves and the living God. So the gospel then starts with Jesus talking to his disciples about the end times. He wants us to know that there's no way we can know for sure when it's coming. We don't know when for sure it's coming in relationship to the cosmos, nor do we know when it's coming exactly in relationship to ourselves. And so he's talking primarily now about ourselves, about what happens to us <clears throat> and what our lives mean for us. And, he's, and this is the other thing. Eschatology gives life a certain meaning, a certain purpose. You know, those who have denied the existence of God or believe it to be really themselves, as many do, that they are the sole arbiter of their faith and the sole arbiter of their destiny, which is, of course, foolhardy. 
um, because be, because we we should realize our own fragility and should realize our our own limitations. Otherwise, we have no idea who we are. And those people who place themselves in the role of God have no idea who they truly are. We find this basically built into the American system, actually, from the philosophy of John Locke himself, who says that personhood is consciousness, and that uh, therefore, as we become conscious, we are creators of our own personhood. In other words, we are our own creators, our own God. This is taken a step further when we get to the feminist deconstructionism of the 20th century, and we find that they accept this idea of the consciousness as person, but then see the body as something, as kind of a, a plastic art object, to where they can do with whatever they want in creating their persona, and that there is no given, that there, there is no, no necessity, for instance. Um, and so they, they seek to liberate themselves from what they call male, male patriarchal biology. Um, and so that they enter in, they can, all the transgender stuff is the fruit of that. I can create myself to whom my consciousness says I am. It has nothing to do with the given from the creator God himself. It is actually <clears throat> a rejection of, of God as creator and master and uh, places this, this consciousness as, as the person and then sees the body you can, you know, and, and there were, there were uh, the theoreticians of all this who, who advocated, for instance, surgery, the changing of the body as a way to take over the body and to create our own personhood and to uh, liberate ourselves from biological determinism and therefore biological oppression. It just goes on and on like this. Well, it doesn't seem to be, that doesn't seem to have much a coordination with the scriptures. For the scriptures make it much, much less secure, and it makes it much, much less definable. For we're not exactly sure exactly what is going to take place. And the Lord gives us guides along the way. I know Luke interprets eschatology in a moral sense. Um, many of the others do not. But at any rate, it has to do with who we become as persons through our integrated self and how we live ourselves. This whole idea of the consciousness versus the body, um, it's the ancient Gnostic heresy beginning in the second century. Um, became very prevalent in the in the in the uh, Albigensian heresies of the of the 13th century, and uh, and certainly is very much a part of modern understanding and modern concepts today. It is it is a it is a a relationship to to revelation, a relationship to being that, as a matter of fact. Um, is distorted and misunderstood um, from the latter days of the apostolic church into the present world. And whenever we think, well, you know, I have a right to do with my body what I want, we hear this all the time. Um, no, you don't. No, you don't. Your body as your personhood belongs to the Creator God, and He has designated and given it as it is. It is accountable to Him. And in that accountability to him, he has revealed to us guidance and principles for us to live by in order that we come to the fullest sense of ourselves 
and in that fullest sense of ourselves, live according to the, live in harmony with, with the whole created order that comes forth from the hand of God and takes us then eventually into the kingdom. It's a totally different view. And those who would then drag transgenderism and all of this other, you know, I, I can make myself what I am. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's Gnosticism. And, uh, and we've dealt with it for, for 2,000 years and we'll still deal with it. But in the end, it has never totally triumphed. And in the end, it won't triumph because it is contrary to the fundamental basic realities of human nature. So Jesus then said to his disciples, as it was in Noah's days, so will it be when the Son of Man comes. For in those days before the flood, people were eating, drinking, taking wives, taking husbands, right up to the day Noah entered into the ark. And they were, and they suspected nothing till the flood came and swept all away. What Jesus is saying is that the end times are going to come upon us unexpectedly. They're going to come upon us, you know, we know the syndromes of sudden death in people. And we also know that the end of the world will be the same way. We can read signs all along the way. We can speculate, and we should. And uh, because we know that human sinfulness is... <clears throat> If we can never triumph over the Lord God, and when it appears to be doing so, we have every right to speculate that perhaps the end is now near and Jesus will come. So he said, um, then of two men in the fields, one will be taken and one left. Two women at the millstone grinding, one taken, one left. We have no idea, not only do we not know the time or the hour, or how it's going to happen, but we are also not the judge of the other person's soul. Now, this is something I think that, that's very interesting for us because we have, I think we have confusion with this, this idea of judgment. You hear in the confessional quite often, you know, I'm very judgmental and, and I'm never sure exactly what that means. We are, we are forbidden um, by the faith to judge the state of another person's soul, no matter who it is. For we have no idea what God has done with that person, and we have no idea what transpires in the last moments of their lives. Um, on the other hand, we need to and we must judge behavior. And I think when we say, well, we're judging the behavior of, of another person, um, that's one thing. If we say, therefore, he's a bad person or she's a bad person, that's quite another, that's quite another uh, judgment. And we have no right to do that. For in the end, two who seem almost identical, one will be taken and the other one will not. This is not the rapture. This is the judgment on the interior life of the individual people, whom the Lord takes to himself and whom he does not. He said, so stay awake. In other words, be on your guard because we don't know when this is going to happen. Many times, you know, in a prolonged illness, we have a much better sense of when our death is going to be. But when we have a sudden death, no, we don't have a sense of that. Or at the end of the world, we don't have a sense of that. But just as in a prolonged death, we read the signs, so we try to read the signs also in relationship to the world. And it seems over and over again that we're on the edges of the last times, and we may well be. And certainly today, with the great apostasy, the great, uh, the great infidelity, the horrible uh, the threats of war and the destruction of war, and the, the choosing, for instance, 
of uh, of a kind of a social construct of a of a social life um, it, that that we feel we have the right to take the lives of others um, in in order to uh, you know in order that we can do what we want. And it's it's not it's not really um, it's it's not a healthy thing that we're in the middle of. And he says, you do not know the day when your master is coming. You may be quite sure of this, that if the householder had known at what time of the night the burglar would come, he would have stayed awake and would not have and would not have allowed anyone to break through the wall of his house. If we were to know the exact time and date of our own death or at the end of the world, there would be a natural tendency for us then to repent. <clears throat> um, or to choose the alternative and, and live a certainly lascivious life. Um, but, but that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be normal. That wouldn't be, that wouldn't be the way that we've lived. That wouldn't be how we prepared ourselves to live. There was a, there was a, a theological perspective uh, 50 years ago, I suppose, called, you know, the fundamental option. And it was unfortunately misunderstood because it was interpreted as the, as the evangelical understanding of being saved. And that once you made a decision for Christ, then, you know, you, you, were on, you were home free. But that isn't what it meant. It meant that life is accumulation and that if we, set, if we set a direction within our life that is open to the grace of God, then we accumulate the effects of that grace, that love in our hearts, and it transforms us as a person. We can always fall from that grace. We can always decide to do otherwise. But there is basically a main thrust, a main direction to how we live. And that becomes an accumulative phenomenon in our life. And, uh, and it also kind of has a tremendous impact on who we are at the end of that life. And so basically what, what the Lord is saying, be careful throughout your whole life. I know I was talking to one person who reflected and meditated upon this and said, that's why I say the act of contrition every night before I go to bed. I want to make sure that I'm right with the Lord before I go to sleep because I may never wake up. And he said, therefore you too must stand ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So the whole gospel is one of anticipation, but also one of warning us in this anticipation that we have to prepare and that our whole life is a preparation for what is to come. You know, we're not going to live some kind of an indifferent, uh, debaucherous kind of life or some kind of it's a cruel, vicious sort of life, some kind of mean sort of life. And then all of a sudden, you know, at, at the end say, oh, gee, I was all wrong, you know. No, when we sin, we justify that sin unless we seek forgiveness. And so all of our faults, we justify. And uh, with that justification, when we will not be challenged in our faults, when that will not happen, um, uh, with... Uh, with with the revelation of God when it when it does not challenge us when it does not open to us for instance the wounds and the uh, that are within us the sin that is within us the uh, the difficulty the darkness that is within us if the revelation of God does not reveal that to us 
then the chances are that we're in the process of justifying that. I'm justified for being angry at so-and-so. I'm justified for stealing. I'm justified for being indifferent to the lives of others. I'm justified in taking the life of a child. I'm justified in, in, in euthanizing an old person or a sick person. I'm justified in it. We're rationalizing it all the time. And you hear it, for instance, in, in, in most of the media, this justification for the bizarre things that we're into, for the barbaric things that we're into. Um, and it certainly is that we have, you know, one of the things that helped to civilize the world, and I know that we've never been sin-free, for heaven's sakes. We've never been sin-free. And uh, we have always had something to be ashamed of and something, you know, blotches upon the reputation and blotches upon, upon you know, the community of believers because of our sinfulness. That's always happened. Yet, at the same time, there is an undercurrent of redemption and there is an undercurrent of grace which at any time we can turn to and at any time we can choose. But in order to do that, we cannot justify our bad behavior. We cannot justify our sin. We cannot say, oh well, you know, given the circumstances, I think I'm really able to do this and it's, and it's all right. Um, certainly there are times when our fall into sin is, is a, is a, is a wake-up moment to the condition that our lives are in. And there is often times then when, when sin um, becomes an opportunity for conversion. But this is not its primary role. Its primary role is to damn us. And that it's a risky, risky business to say, oh well, you know, I'm going to sin because it will teach me something. And uh, that was Luther. Sin boldly that you might experience the gift of forgiveness, he said. Um, that's bizarre because the sinning boldly affects your personhood. It is something that stays with you to the end. And it has an impact, a strong impact, on the kind of person you become, and therefore a strong impact on your destiny with the Lord. Today is a critical, critical day in the life of the Christian and the life of the believer. Because today we have the opportunities to change our direction, to overcome our sins and our faults. Today is the day we can choose the Lord and move in the direction of his grace, listening to his word and being attentive to his presence, hearkening the deep and profound and age-old teaching and wisdom of the church. <clears throat> Not much of its contemporary nonsense, but certainly in the depth of its heart, we have dwelling the Holy Spirit, which, which has guided us for century upon century upon century and will never deceive us in the very depth of the teaching of the church. And we have to distinguish this from the, from the blathering of the church, which it does in every age, not just our own, about all sorts of superficial and all sorts of consequential realities. Um, down deep inside, there is a truth because down deep inside there is the living spirit of the Lord. And it is in that that we are attuned to. We are attuned to that in the reception of the sacraments. We are attuned to that especially in the liturgy. We are attuned to that basically when we seek an authentic theological insight. Um, all of those things, we can trust the church. We can trust the church as it exists in the depths of its own heart. 
And just like we can trust the Lord always, not to trick us, not to, not to, you know, deceive us, not to say, oh, gee, you know, live this, live this great life um, that I'm telling you to live, and then in the end it doesn't make any difference. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And because of the Christian ethos and because of the Christian way of life, the, the church has been brutally attacked. Certainly, you know, for instance, in the 19th century, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche has said, you know, that, that Christianity destroyed one of the basic pleasures of human life, which was our sexuality, by turning it all into a guilt-ridden phenomenon, everything. Well, that's just not true. Um, it's just not true. Certainly there have been, you know, puritanical movements within Christianity, within Catholicism itself. But Catholicism generally has held, at least from my experience, a fairly healthy understanding of sexuality. And certainly now in the new, in the new phenomenon of the uh, theology of the body, that is, uh, that is a development of John Paul's anthropology from the book of Genesis, that deep in the midst of all that, there is certainly a great and a deep respect for the human for human physicality. So while Nietzsche might have been referring to a dim, one dimension of Christianity, um, and remember that this, for instance, was also in this country and in England the Victorian age, which uh, while it was quite promiscuous, it still publicly um, eschewed any kind of uh, sexual activity or sexual reference or inference. Um, the the oppressiveness of, of the puritanical nature of Victorianism certainly led to a great deal of deviation, and uh, and and you know that's what happens when 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 you distort creation, creation distorts you, and uh, because it is not what God has presented, it is what in fact we have created. So going back to the gospel then, Jesus reminds us of the unknownness, of the immediacy, and of the importance of today. For he says, as again, as it was in the day of Noah, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. For in those days before the flood, people were eating, drinking, taking wives, taking husbands. Right up to the day, Noah went into the ark, and they suspected nothing till the flood came and swept everything away. The flood is the second coming of the Lord, and the second coming of the Lord will wash away time and take away, therefore, our opportunity to participate more fully in the process of our own redemption. Best that we be prepared and that we have participated as best we can and as fully as we can when that flood of the second coming of the Lord come, is upon us and when all things are swept away and what is left is God and ourselves for all eternity. Eternity not as an infinite um, duration, of, of individual moments, but eternity as a single moment that never ends. And, uh, and therefore the most, the most joyful experience of our whole lives pale, considering what will be with us forever. And, um, and, and I think, uh, unfortunately, we have to talk about eternity in, in relationship to time because it's all the reference we have. But we would also have to know in the back of our minds that that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about duration. We're talking about a moment. So 
as we hear this gospel and as we prepare ourselves then for the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Nativity and in the, and in the Epiphany, let us realize that deep within us he is still alive and he is with us and he is growing within us if we allow him to do so and that he is preparing to take us with him into the manifestation to the world. And best we be prepared to participate in his manifestation, lest we ourselves cause the downfall of others, and therefore the downfall of ourselves. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of